Let's get right into our word this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, uh, verse 51. Paul is talking about death. He's, he's talking to the church of Corinthians. And again, my sermon title today is The Day Death Died. Listen to what he said, verse 51. He said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Listen to what he said. Death is swallowed up in victory. See, that's what we celebrate today. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, Hades or grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is a law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. May the Lord add his blessing to his word this morning. As we get it right into our word this morning, many of us uh, have, have uh, most of us have, been, have seen many Easter's. How many have seen many Easter's? I, uh, I, I'm 57 years old, and so... Uh, what that means is I have seen 57 Easter's. Uh, I don't remember some of them. I, I probably could look back in family photos and, you know, how we dress kids up. You know, I, I, I used to wonder, am I going to embarrass my kids when they get older and look at what I put them in? You know, you ever thought about that? Anyway, so 57 years, I've been in ministry over 30 years. And so not only have I heard the message of Easter, I've also have preached or taught on the message of Easter for many, many years. And so this morning, I wanted to do something different because, again, I think most of us traditionally have heard the Easter story, and we celebrate the Easter story. So I want to I take it from a completely different angle uh, this morning and, and talk about the day death died because here's the thing. Easter makes all the difference. Resurrection Sunday makes all the difference. In fact, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, that if Christ is not risen, remember what he said? Your faith is futile. Not only is your faith futile, if, if Christ is not risen from the dead, your faith is futile and you are still, what? In your sin. You are still in your sin. I've often said that we could board a plane uh, right now and we could fly to various parts of the world and in these various parts of the world, you would find shrines. And these shrines would have the remnants or the remains of dead religious leaders. But not so with Christianity and not so with Jesus. Because we could, we could get in a plane right now. We could fly to Tel Aviv. When we land in Tel Aviv, we could get on a bus and we could, drive, we could ride that bus going east into Jerusalem. And you could walk to the garden tomb. You could see the hole in the side of the mountain, but it's empty. I've been there twice. I've stuck my head in that hole. I've looked up. I've looked down. I've looked all around. And he's not there. There's no remnant there. There's no bones. There's no remains of him. In fact, the only thing you would find in that tomb is a sign that says he is not here. He is risen just like he said. You see, that's what Easter is all about. Amen. Amen. Easter is the day that we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Now, what does that mean? Well, bottom line is this. If Jesus Christ is Lord of your life, here's what Easter means. It means death 
no longer has a hold on us. Death no longer has a hold on us. Jesus conquered death and hell forever, and he sealed the victory. That's why Paul said, death, where's your sting? Grave, where's your victory? Because of what Christ did, it has lost its sting, and the grave no longer has the victory. Easter is the day that death died. Now, while we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus, we've got all the festivities going on, we still celebrate the day death died. Now, let's talk about death for a little bit. Let's look at the early years. You know, there's been a lot of speculation down through the years as to the origin of death. You know, from the earliest time, we can see death lurking in the shadows of history. In fact, if you go back to the very beginning, history tells us that his first appearance was in the Garden of Eden. Okay, death was was conceived in Adam and Eve's temptation, and he was birthed the moment Adam and Eve sinned. Remember, Remember, God said to Adam, in the day that you eat of this tree, what happens? You will surely die. In the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die. So, so, so death was conceived in the temptation and was born when they sinned against God. Uh, God had created this wonderful place of creation uh, called the Garden of Eden. A place, he placed man in the middle of that garden and he told him, all of this is yours, tend it for me. The only prohibition that was given to man was to not eat of that one tree. Everything else was theirs to enjoy. Everything else was theirs to relish. They could not participate or, or partake of that one tree. I was telling the early service a story I heard years ago about a man that had owned a, he'd owned a plantation and he had a man that worked for him by the name of Moses. Now Moses, was his one job was to keep the firebox full of wood. So that's all he did all day long was he chopped wood. And so one day, the, uh, the owner was, was in the house looking out the window, and there was Moses chopping wood like he normally does. But he listened, and every time Moses would come down on that, on that piece of wood with an axe, he would say, oh, Adam, just like that. And he thought, man, what in the world is that all about? So finally, his curiosity got the best of him, and he went outside. And sure enough, every time Moses would hit that piece of wood, he would say, Adam, and so he finally said, he said, Moses, what are you doing? He said, why do you say Adam every time you hit that wood? And he said, well, he said, it's like this. If Adam hadn't done what Adam did, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. And, and so the owner said, well, I mean, if that's all you're doing this for, then I tell you what, Moses, take the rest of your life off. You don't have to, do, you don't have to chop another another piece of wood. You don't have to put another piece of wood in the firebox. You can have the rest. If that's all you're doing it for is because of Adam, then you just go take the rest of your life off. Well, he's like, you kidding me, right? And he said, no. So man, Moses just dropped that ax, went inside, got him a big old tall glass of lemonade, was enjoying life. The owner came up to him and he said, but, but Moses, there's one thing I want you to know. He said, you can do anything you want to do. He said, but in the kitchen on the counter is a box And under no condition are you ever, ever, ever to open that box. Well, I mean, that's the only thing he was told not to do. He could have anything he wanted, do anything he wanted. So he was excited about it. Went on for a couple of weeks doing just fine. One day he's walking through the house, comes through the kitchen, and he sees that box. The owner's gone. Moses sees that box, and he's thinking, I wonder why he doesn't want me to open that box. He's not here, and he'll never know. 
Curiosity got the best of him. He goes over to that box. He opens that box, and inside that box is a letter. And it said, Moses, if you had been there too, you would have done the same thing. Now get back out and start chopping wood. <laughs> and that's about right. That's about right. You know, I mean, again, death came because of man's sin. There was only one prohibition. You know, people today believe that man is basically good. How many ever heard that argument before? People say, well, we're born good, and it's society that corrupts us. Listen, go back to the nursery, and that'll, you're, you'll know real quick. I, I, listen, our babies are angels. I understand that. But I tell you what, you get your angel together with somebody else's angel, there's a devil going to show up somewhere. <laughs> I, I'm just telling you. Oh, they're just born good. Preacher, don't you understand that? It's society that corrupts everybody. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. It's not what the Bible teaches. You know, today people are telling us man is basically good and we're corrupted by society. You know, man speculates. If we could ever find utopia, if we could ever find that place where everything is the way we want it to be, evil would disappear. But listen to me. The Garden of Eden stands as a stark reminder that man left to his own natural desire will always choose sin. Left to our own natural inclination, we always will choose sin. All man desired was in the garden. God had created this perfect uh, place and gave them that one restriction. And even that one restriction they could not uphold. God had warned them again that in the day that they eat of that tree, they would die. And we know the story. Satan is there lurking in the garden. He's tempting and deceiving Eve. And, and she ate of the forbidden fruit and then gave it to Adam who ate and because of that sin, everybody talks about, well, if a loving God was so loving and caring, why do you have this, 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 and this? i tell you why. Because sin has marred the perfect creation of God. You know, we want to blame God for not intervening. Listen, God has intervened. I've heard people say, well, Pastor, if God is so good and God is so loving, why doesn't he do something? He did. The Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He did. He sent his only begotten son to die on Calvary for our sin without any guarantee that we would ever accept what he did. Again, we get this idea that if we just had a perfect place, they had that perfect place and yet they fell, they sinned. See, that was the day death was born. That was the day death was born. The Bible says in Romans 5, 12, by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world and death by sin. That's where it came from. Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed unto man once to die after this the judgment. Sin brought forth death. The Bible says in, in 1 John 3.8 says, whoever commits sin is of the devil. Whoever commits sin is of the devil. When Adam and Eve sinned, death was born. And I want to tell you, death changed everything. It changed everything. I want you to think about this. Before death came into our world, before Adam and Eve sinned against God, they lived in this perfect utopia, if you will, this perfect place. The Bible describes it. It was a place unimaginable to, our, to us today. It was a place where there was harmony in creation. It was a place where the Bible says that God would come down in the cool of the evening and would have fellowship with man. You, by the way, that's been, always been God's desire. Jesus bridged that gap so we could restore fellowship. It was always his desire. There was harmony. God would come down in the cool of the evening, would have fellowship and, and, and with mankind, the crown of his creation. There was harmony in that creation. There was, the land yielded its fruit without fail. Even, uh, even the animal kingdom existed in peace. But death changed all of that. See, the day death was born, it changed everything. It brought thorns and thistles and pain and travail. 
this human body began to decay and deteriorate. Again, I'm, I said I'm 57 years old. Listen, there are things I can't do today that I could do 10 years ago. It grieves me to say that. But there are things that I long to do. There are things that my brain says, hey, that would be fun. And my body says, you'd be an idiot if you tried. <laughs> you know, for the last few years, I've been trying to convince that helicopter pilot, let me, I did that in the military. I love rappelling out of helicopters. I thought, let me do it. He said, yeah, but you may have it up here, but your body's different. Sure enough, I'd probably end up in traction somewhere. You know, and, and death, it was born, it was conceived and born, and it began to mar the creative order of God. Death wasted no time infecting the human race with a culture. I want you to hear me. It infected the human race with a culture of death. Very quickly, you see his work in Cain. Cain killed his brother Abel over jealousy. Again, death began his dastardly deeds and began working in God's creative order. Death rapidly becomes the strongest predator on the face of the earth. No one could conquer death. No one had that ability. Death, when it came, it came and it was indiscriminate. It didn't matter if you were rich or poor. It didn't matter if you were on Time Magazine as the most beautiful person in the world or you fell out of an ugly tree. It didn't matter. No, I'm just saying. It didn't matter. It didn't discriminate. Didn't matter if you were educated, uneducated. Didn't matter if you were red, yellow, black, and white. Didn't care. Because when death came, came for everybody. The most powerful predator on the face of the earth. He relentlessly worked to track down its victims and take life from them. Again, he doesn't play favorites. Death is what's pushing nations to war. You think we live in a culture today where Again, it boggles my mind how we live in a world today that, that is so consumed with death. We march for rights to kill unborn babies. It boggles my mind. That's a different sermon, but it just boggles. That's where it came from. When death was born, it unleashed a culture of death on this planet. And today, people would rather kill unborn babies than take responsibility for their own actions. And we, we disguise it as care, health care. Nothing caring about killing an unborn baby. That's what death does. That's what death does. Death has been very active. You find him in the Old Testament. He's standing there with three Hebrew children who find themselves in the fiery furnace. And death is, again, claiming victory, thinking, I've got them now. These men who stood against the edict of the king, these men who stood up uh, for God, I, I've got them, and I'm going I'm to take their life. But he didn't count on the fourth man in the fire. That fourth man shows up, and the Bible says they came out, and not even the smell of smoke was on their bodies. Death was angry, and he said, I'll get that man. You fast forward, and death takes an ambitious undertaking, because death had received word that that fourth man that was in the fire had now become flesh. John said, in the beginning there was the word, and the word became flesh. Death thought, man, I got him. If he's got flesh... If he's flesh and bone, I've got him and I, I'll take his life. And can't you imagine? He's working, trying to figure out how to get this fourth man in the fire so I can see him all through his ministry lurking in the shadows. Temptation came. Again, all of that was at the, at the behest of death. The temptation of Christ. People wanting to stone Jesus. All of these things that happened, death was trying his best to get his tentacles in the Son of Man and destroy him. He tried and he tried. And finally, 
we see Jesus enter into Jerusalem on that final week. And I can just hear death saying, you know what? He'll be mine within a week. I can see as he goes with the guards to the Garden of Gethsemane, between the Mount of Olives and, 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 and Mount uh, the, uh, Jerusalem, there's the Kidron Valley. And he goes with the, I can see him with the guards as they walk into that Garden of Gethsemane, snarling and, and growling at Jesus. You know, he's trying to intimidate the Son of God. I would love to have been there on that. Because I think Jesus has this, again, it's a spirit thing, and Jesus sees right through everything going on. And he sees that enemy lurking to take his life, and he's unmoved by it. Because remember, Jesus said, it's for this cause that I came. Jesus came to defeat death. I can see as he goes with the crowd from the garden to the house of Caiaphas and then over to Pilate. And I can hear, I can hear death whisper in the Pilate's ear, kill him! Kill him. Give him to me and I'll take his life. When that didn't work, death whispered in the ears of the frenzied crowd and they started crying out, crucifying, crucifying. Release to us Barabbas, the insurrectionist. Let the blood of this man. Do you remember what they said? Let his blood be on us. Little did they know that Jesus was saying, this blood is for you. See, death thought he had him right where he wanted him. Death thought he had him once and for all. Pilate pronounces that Jesus was innocent, but because he was politically savvy and wanted to the sway the crowds. He gave, them, he gave him over to the Jews to do what they want. He sent him to the Roman uh, guards to beat with that cat of nine tails. And, and again, this wasn't just any group of soldiers. This was the Pretoria Guard. These were men who were battle-hardened. They, they, they were experienced, and they took that crown of thorns, and they jammed it into his brow. Then they had that one soldier with the cat of nine tails, and, and they were skilled in such a way that when that thing would come across his body, he would step one way and it would wrap around and it was, lit, it was lined with bone and metal and, and glass shards and he could step one way and flick his wrist and it would dig into his flesh and literally rip it off. Death was there laughing and rejoicing. With every lash of that whip, death lurched at Jesus, at the body of Christ, but he couldn't get a death grip. 39 stripes Jesus took for us. 40 was one was known to kill a man. Death failed, but he says, you know what, I'll be patient, I'll get him. He gets the crowd drummed up into a frenzy. They say, crucify him. There he goes. Death, along with Satan and his demonic hordes, were present when they took Jesus and they laid him on that cross. He was there smiling, grinning from ear to ear when, he took, when, he took nail, when they took nails and spikes and drove it into his hands and to his feet. They shouted with glee as that Roman soldier placed those nails and placed in his hands and feet, and then they laughed when that cross was lifted up and dropped into that hole, tearing the flesh and the bone and the sinew of his bodies. Finally, in the midst of his agony, Jesus, with every ounce of strength in him, pushes himself up, and he says two things. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And then the second thing he said was, it is finished. It is finished. 
He bowed his head and he died. Jesus, the Lamb of God, has died. Walking on the road to Jerusalem The time had come to sacrifice again My two small sons, they walked beside me on the road The reason that they came was to watch the land Daddy, Daddy, what will we see there? There's so much that we don't understand. So I told them of Moses and Father Abraham. And then I said, dear children, watch the land. There will be so many in Jerusalem today. We must be sure the land doesn't run away. And I told them of Moses and Father Abraham. And then I said, dear children, watch the land. When we reached the city, I knew something must be wrong. There were no joyful worshipers, no joyful worship songs. I stood there with my children in the midst of angry men. And then I heard the crowd cry out. He barely looked alive 
watched him as he struggled. I watched him as he fell. The cross came down upon his back. The crowd began to yell. In that moment, I felt such agony. In that moment, I felt such loss. Till a Roman soldier grabbed my arm and screamed, You! They drove nails deep in his feet and hands. And yet upon the cross, I heard him pray, Father, forgive them. Oh, never have I seen such love in any other eyes. Into thy hands I commit my spirit, he prayed. I stood for what seemed like years I'd lost all sense of time Until I felt two tiny hands Holding tight to mine My children stood there weeping I heard the oldest say Father, please forgive us. Lamb ran away. Daddy, Daddy, what have we seen here? There's so much that we don't understand. So I took them in my arms And we turned and faced the cross and Then I said, dear children Watch the Aren't you glad it didn't end there? 
This would be a very solemn, somber day if all I could tell you was that Jesus lived and then he died. But that was the day death died. Because you see, the story didn't stop there. The sun refused to shine. The earth convulsed. The birds hushed their singing. The angels in heaven stood in stunned amazement at the Son of God who went to that cross as he slumped in death. Pandemonium broke out again. I would remind you that death had been targeting the Son of God from, from the very beginning. But there was something troubling death even in that moment because he had heard Jesus say, destroy this temple and in three days I'll rise again. See, if the story ended here today, you know, again, it would be a very, it would be very somber because we would all be lost in our sin. But the story continued because he didn't stay dead. The reason we celebrate Resurrection Sunday is that three days later, Jesus came out victorious over death, hell, and the grave. In fact, Jesus said in Revelation 1.18, says, I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. And he doesn't stop there. He said, and I have the keys of death, hell, and the grave. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 and 5, he said, once we were all dead in our trespasses and sin, but God has made us alive in Christ Jesus. You see, it was more than just what happened 2,000 years ago. It's relevant today because if any man is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. He gives you something brand new. Because he lives, death was to be feared. Prior to the crucifixion and the resurrection, death was to be feared. But I'm here to tell you that if you were born again this morning, death has lost its sting and the grave has lost its victory. We are the redeemed of the Lord and death no longer has a hold on us. Amen. That's why Paul said, if any man is in Christ, he's a new crea creation. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. God spends a lot of time in the Bible telling us who we are. It's almost as if he knew that we would doubt who that was from time to time. It's as if he saw it coming, that we'd spend our whole lives searching for what our identity, what our real name was, and that there'd be many moments in our lives where we'd let different kinds of names define us. When we've looked in the mirror, compared ourselves to pictures and heard the name ugly. When we've been left by loved ones, people we trusted once and heard the name unworthy. When we've been drowning in discouragement, living in a seemingly never-ending crisis and heard the name forgotten. When we've had our hopes up and our hearts open, only to be brought down by closed doors and we've heard rejected. When we look for infinite, affirming love through lesser, physical, fleshly versions when we gave it away or when it was stolen, and we heard impure, we heard garbage, when we turn to other vices to ease our pain, and we hear addict, we hear forever broken, when we feel like we're standing in the shadow of someone else's calling, and we hear second place, when our pain cripples us to a point where we don't even know how to let others in, and we hear lonely, when our past seems too gross for others to forgive, and we hear disgusting, it's overwhelming. These voices we're constantly hearing, it's suffocating. 
this air of constant critique and comparing. And it's sort of amazing the people whose voices I've allowed to name me, the power that I've given to my past, to my mirror, and to my surroundings and enabled them to identify me, the amount of years I've spent living up to whatever others speak over me. But God says something else about me. It's like he knew that there would be other voices. So he wrote his voice down in a timeless book of truths that would remind us over and over again in the moments when lies would block his truths and somehow make us forget, I'm going back to the source. Not the people that I've allowed to represent God to me, but the actual, literal, tangible words that he has written down for me. And there's some other names he's given to me. John 15, 15, he calls me friend. Ephesians 2.10, he calls me his workmanship. He calls me his art. He calls me handmade purpose, fashion for good things. 1 Thessalonians 1.4, he calls me chosen. Galatians 3.26, he calls me his child. Romans 5.8, he calls me greatly loved. John 8.36, he calls me free, free indeed. And 2 Corinthians 5.17, he calls me brand new. And it is amazing how different these names are from the names that I'm used to listening to. And in my journey to discover who I really am, in my battle to uncover the truths of myself, I've learned something new about my name. And now this is what I am certain of. My name is not the name that my past calls me. It's not the name the world calls me. It's not even the name my own mirror calls me. But my name is the name that I respond to. And I can choose today from this moment forward to answer to a new name. When I hear lonely, that's not me. When I hear disgusting, that's not me. When I hear unworthy, I don't even look over my shoulder. When I hear broken, they must have confused me. Please look elsewhere. When I hear ugly, abandoned, useless, forgotten, I figure somebody just has to remind them. Maybe those were my old names, but they are no longer the names that I respond to. My name is the name I have chosen to spend my days living up to. And if these other voices are not saying the same thing that the truth is, then I look in my mirror and I repeat this. They have no right to be speaking to you. And when you stop answering to your old names, they stop having power over you. The names that my father, eternity's author, the world's creator has called me are the only names that I respond to. When I hear friends of God, that's my name. God's workmanship, that is my name. Loved, wanted, created with a purpose, that is my name. God's temple, that is my name. Free, that is my name. Child of God, you must be looking for me. Greatly loved, you must be calling for me. Brand new, that is my name. That is the name that I respond to because the enemy has no power here. Perfect love casts out fear and perfect love has named me and you. What is your new name? What is stirring up inside of you when you hear these words that his word, that the word has proclaimed? What do you know is the name God is calling you? Maybe it's not the name you grew up with. Maybe it's not the name your old friends associate you with. Maybe it's not the name your whole life you were used to identifying with. But it is the name that you now answer to. So when the enemy tries to get to you, it's just the name you introduce yourself with. As for me, my name is forgiven. My name is brand new. My name is chosen, loved, wanted, child of God, created with a purpose. And it's been a pleasure to meet you.
Amen. See, that's what this day is all about. We used to sing a song years ago that says, There's a new name written down in glory, and it's mine. We've got so many people today sitting in good Bible-believing teaching churches that are locked in and identify with what they used to be. John, oh, you mean the attic? Susie, oh, you mean the gossip? Charles, oh, yeah, that liar? The resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. Because if you are in Christ, you are not identified by who you used to be. Paul said, you once were these things, but you have been made alive with Christ. See, that's why we're here to celebrate. I came to tell you this morning that if you have death in any part of your life this morning, maybe, maybe you're still called by your old name, your old sin. Maybe your marriage is on the rocks. Maybe, maybe your marriage has a little bit of death to it. Maybe your finances. Maybe your health. Well, I'm here to tell you this morning on this resurrection day that death no longer has a power over us. If any man is in Christ, if you are a believer this morning, death has lost its sting and the grave has lost its victory. You are free, and if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. I came to tell you this morning as I close that on this resurrection day, death has lost its hold. God can bring life, new life, into dead situations. That dead marriage, God can bring resurrection to it. That dead, those dead finances, God can bring resurrection to it. That dead health issue, God can bring resurrection to it this morning. I still believe this morning that because he lives, I can face every challenge, every trial, every tribulation. Everything that comes my way is no match. Death thought he won. For three days, death celebrated. But I'd like to have been there on that third day. Those ladies walked out to expect to see a, the remnant of a dead leader that they had followed for three and a half years. They get there and the stone's been rolled away and they're too, the angels are there and said, why are you looking for the living among the dead? He is not here. That forever changed everything. And this morning, it changes us. I want you to bow with me all across the building this morning. Listen, the Bible says if that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, if it dwells in us, he will quicken our mortal body. Maybe you're here today and this, this is a whole different type of Easter sermon that you've ever been a part of. I'm here to tell you that death is not to be feared. Death no longer has hold. In fact, Paul uses the word departed. The idea behind departure is just simply leaving one place to go to another place. That's how Paul pictured death. I want to ask you this morning, as we celebrate Resurrection Sunday, are you a believer this morning? Are you born again? Is Christ Lord of your life? Listen, the only way you can participate in the promises that he has for us is to be ready, is to know Jesus. He died on that cross. He paid your sin's price. And he wants a relationship with you. Let me ask you this morning, are you ready? Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this the judgment. Every one of us has an appointment that's been established by God. It's an appointment that we will not miss. It's an appointment that will come. The only question is, will I be ready when my time comes? As we close this morning, I would be remiss in my responsibilities as a pastor not to give you an opportunity. 
So when nobody looked around this morning, I'm going to count to three. And if you're here today and say, you know what, preacher? I need Jesus to be Lord of my life. What a great way to celebrate the resurrection by giving your heart and life to Jesus. Again, this is very, very private time. I want this between you and God. He did all of this for you because he wanted to restore that relationship. He wanted to pay that price. When I count to three, if you're here today, say, you know what, preacher, I need Jesus in my life today. Maybe, maybe you walked with Jesus a long time ago, but he's not been relevant in your life for a long time. Maybe life happened, you got busy with other things, and, and you just kind of lost track of your relationship with God. It's easy to do. But the most important thing you'll ever do in your life is to be right with him. With nobody looking around, if you're here today, one, two, three. Just slip in, write them right back down. Just write them right back down. Anybody on the main floor in the balcony, write them right back down. Thank you. Anybody else? Pastor, I'm, I need Jesus in my life today. I need Jesus in my life today. I need to recommit my life to Christ. I'm not living for him. I'm not serving him today. And I need to get ready. I want to be ready for Jesus. Would you stand with me all across the building this morning? I know there are a lot of churches nowadays that have kind of bowed out on the altar service. I still think the altar is where everything's altered. Amen? I think the altar is where everything is altered once again, where our lives are transformed. I'm going to ask you to do something with me this morning. Everybody in the building, we do this all the time. I'm just going to ask you to bow with me. I'm going to lead in a prayer, and I want you to pray this prayer with me this morning. Dear Jesus, thank you for loving me and giving your life for me. I recognize today that I am a sinner and I need a Savior. I ask you to come into my life, forgive me of my sin, and make me a brand new person. I give you everything that I have, everything that I am, everything I ever will be. I surrender to you. I confess with my mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and I believe in my heart that he was raised from the dead. So according to your word, from this moment forward, I am saved, born again. My name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And if my appointment were to come, I'm ready to meet you, Jesus. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Listen, if you prayed that prayer this morning, amen. Go ahead and do that. That's all right. All right. Listen, if you pray, we make it so hard. But the Bible says it's about repentance, confession. If you prayed that prayer this morning, either for the first time, or an act of rededication, I want to say, first of all, if it's the first time, welcome to the family of God. I, I mentioned this last week. I, I've, I've been in different parts of the world, and they speak different languages. But there's one thing I enjoy is that when you get together with God's people, it doesn't matter. Espanol, Dios te bendiga. It doesn't matter if they speak Spanish. It doesn't matter if they speak. I was in Bangkok last week. If they speak whatever they speak there. <laughs> 
It doesn't matter. When, they get, when we get together, we're brothers and sisters in the Lord. There's something about being part of the family of God. And I, I just want to say welcome to the family of God. If you, did, if you prayed that prayer for an act of rededication, let me just say welcome home. We've missed you. We've missed you. We're glad to have you back home. Before we dismiss, there's one last thing I want to do. If you prayed that prayer and you meant it in your heart, I'm going to ask you to do probably the most difficult thing you've ever done. Is that here in a moment, I'm going to ask you to take a step out of your seat and meet me right down front. You say, why would I do that, preacher? I don't know anybody here. Well, that's all right. It's not about knowing somebody here. Jesus said this. He said, if you're ashamed of me in front of men, I will be ashamed of you in front of my Father who is in heaven. Listen, there's no reason to be embarrassed about your faith. If you accepted Christ for the first time today, you know what? It's time to let people know, I choose Jesus. If you've rededicated your life this morning, it's time to let people know, I choose Jesus. There's nothing to be ashamed about. I knelt in a barracks in San Antonio, Texas, Lackland Air Force Base in 1985, rededicated my life to the Lord, and I have not looked back since that day. Nothing to be embarrassed about. So when I count to three, if you prayed that prayer and you meant it, first time rededication, I want you to come. I want... You say, well, I've already prayed that prayer. Yeah, but we want to pray over you now. Amen? Church, help me out. One, two, three. Come on. You prayed that prayer. Come on. Amen. Come on. We'll wait on you. In the balcony, we'll wait on you. Amen. Come on down. We'll wait on you. This is your day. This is your day. Hang on a second. Hang on. I, I tell you what, let, let's, I, I know with a crowd like this sometimes, this is the most difficult thing for people to do is to step out in front of others. So I'm going to ask you to be a friend to one next to you. Would you turn to that one next to you and say, hey, can I walk down there with you? And if they say, yeah, would you take them by the hand and come stand with them? One more, go ahead and turn to somebody and bring them down. Come on, church, help me out one more time. Amen. Go ahead and ask them and bring them down. Uh, we can do better than that. Come on. How about in the balcony? Come on, ask somebody. Bring them down. Amen. 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 This is the most important thing that will ever happen right here. This is why everybody works hard because this right here is the most important They've already prayed. Our, our team's going to be praying for them. I'm going to ask you to join with me in prayer here in just a moment. But this is what it's all about, church. The most important thing we can do is choose Jesus. The world is going to tell you that it's wealth, it's popularity, fame, all these things. None of that matters. When we stand before God, He's not going to ask you to show Him your portfolio. He's not going to ask you were you popular? Did you live in the right house? Did you hang out with the right people? None of that's going to matter. He's going to say, what did you do with my son Jesus? Because that is the answer to the question. I'm going to ask you to extend your hand towards these that are down front here today. And I want us just to pray a blessing over them. They've already prayed a rededication, salvation prayer. Let's just pray. Father, right now in the name of Jesus, Lord, we pray that spirit of heaviness 
would be lifted off of each and every one here today. Lord, I pray for those online that have committed their life to you today, either for the first time or an act of rededication. I pray that where they are right now, in that living room, in that bedroom, Lord, in that automobile, uh, Lord, in that hotel room, wherever they are right now tuning in, I pray, Father, that that spirit of heaviness will be lifted off of them, that they would experience a total joy and peace that comes from knowing you. Father, I pray that today that they rejoice knowing that their name has been written down in the Lamb's book of life and there's not a devil powerful enough to remove that name. Father, we as a church family stand with each one here today. Father, we lift them up in our prayers. Lord, we commit to walking with them through this journey of faith. Father, I pray that you would ground them and every day you would unfold a new facet of your love for each of them. Lord, may they discover how much they love you and every day may that grow with intensity, Lord. I pray, Father, that your blessings would rest upon them and each person here in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. Before we're dismissed, amen. Amen, that's good. Go ahead and do that one more time. Before you're dismissed, there's a couple things, especially those who responded this morning, but maybe you're here. Uh, four things I want you to do. Number one, next week is Baptism Sunday. If you're here this morning, you need to be baptized. We would love to baptize you. Uh, next Sunday after the 1045 service. The second thing I want to do for you this morning is, listen, if you don't have a good Bible-believing teaching church, you do now. We would love, I'd love to be your pastor. We'd love for you to be a part of Bethel. God's doing so many wonderful things here. Get yourself a Bible. Begin reading the Bible. You don't have one, come see me. I'll get you one and start your prayer life. Prayer is communication with God. Your faith is not designed to live in isolation. Get in the groups. Grow together in your faith. Watch what God can do. Amen? God is good. Father, thank you today for Resurrection Day. Lord, we speak life into dead situations, Lord. I pray, God, that you would just reign supreme in our hearts and our lives. Take us out of here rejoicing in your faithfulness and in your goodness. We declare it in the mighty name of Jesus. And we all said, amen, amen. God bless you. Love you very much. See you next time. He's the rock on which I stand when everything around me shakes.